This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So delighted to have with me Dr. Wayne Frederick, the president of Howard University, joining me on the phone from Washington, D.C. Dr. Frederick, President Frederick, really nice to talk with you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I hope you're staying safe and healthy as well. We're doing the best we can. All of us are, right? Um, So tell me about what's going on on your campus when it comes to reopening. We've talked so much about it. I know that there are meetings and Zoom calls and all sorts of contingency plans. How are you thinking about the fall right now? So we are thinking that we will uh, de-densify our campus. By, and by that, I mean we have 10,000 students. We don't anticipate having uh, that many, certainly not more than uh, 4,000 students. We have students in... Uh, schools and colleges uh, that are, that need uh, the face-to-face interaction, such as medicine, uh, dentistry, um, etc. Et so, so we we have to bring students back for that. There's students with clinical practicums uh, that will be there. We, we are looking at our dorm assignments as well to see if we can uh, go down to single rooms as well. We're going to have a hybrid, um, some online. Uh, we also are going to have um, the face-to-face uh, classes uh, live streamed as well so students can participate. We want to be also cognizant of the fact that we have students from about 71 countries mm. and uh, 46 states. So uh, the time zones are a challenge, and we have to make sure that we can make accommodations there. So, you know, lo- lots of precautions, um, lots of PPE, and, and making sure that we have the right barriers and social distancing in the classroom. Right. And, you know, Dr. Frederick, it's interesting. I feel like we all, especially in the media, talk a lot about students. And maybe it's because, you know, I have a almost college age teenager. So we talk a lot about it from the student's perspective. Talk to me about your faculty and and the conversations you're having with them individually and as a group and, and their concerns about coming back. Yeah, our academic deans have been engaging them. Um, the faculty have been fantastic. You know, they have really uh, gone about the business of uh, standing up the online instruction, uh, and and that has been uh, really fantastic to watch. Uh, the other thing that they have been um, doing that I think is is uh, very very helpful is being thoughtful about the classes that don't naturally fit. Um, you know, for online. So, for instance, like a physics lab. Um, we, because African Americans are five times more likely to drown, as an example, we have a requirement to take a swimming class at Howard actually to graduate. So, trying to think creatively of how we do that. At the same time, uh, we have a significant number of faculty who are 65 and over, and right. faculty who have comorbidities. We hire, we employ more African American faculty than any other single institution, higher institution in America. And so that also poses a challenge because we recognize that we have an employee base that is is more at risk for contracting this uh, virus and also having a a bad outcome. So we we are being very thoughtful um, about managing that and making sure that we understand their concerns as well. So talk to me about testing, because I know that you're offering testing uh, at one of your locations uh, for your faculty. Tell me about how that extends, how it works, and, and the role that you're playing in the broader community. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we, we um, have a, a facility uh, that we have uh, set up in conjunction with a partner 
uh, out in uh, Ward 7, uh, so it can serve the residents of Ward 7 and 8 that are 95% African-American. We also at our hospital, when we look at the patients that we've been seeing, the vast majority came from these wards. So looking at, at putting those together, we decided that we really needed to get information out there and to get um, testing um, out there as well. And so Bank of America gave us a grant, a $1 million grant, uh, to allow us to stand up a testing site there, and it has been uh, oversubscribed uh, very early on. It, you did not need a doctor's note uh, or anything like that. You have a lot of frontline workers who live there, and therefore we felt that their exposure was significant and uh, we wanted to really uh, assist them. So it has been really important for us to do that. At the same time, I also want to remind everyone that the elective clinical care that we were providing there uh, was also suspended, and therefore that gave us an opportunity uh, as a group to really put those um, healthcare workers uh, to work, and they really wanted to serve their community. So I also want to thank our staff uh, who, while... Um, we, we did not have regular clinical activity, really volunteered and stepped in and stepped up to do this. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what is it like in Washington right now with this virus? Because I feel like we're dealing with all these hot spots around the country. What are you seeing yeah. in your community? The mayor in Washington, D.C., I think has done a fantastic job. Um, and so what we're seeing is a continued decline I think just recently we may have had a, a, an uptick on one day of cases, um, which I'm hoping is strictly due to testing. But she's been really good. She's been um, open about educating everyone, about um, ensuring that they're wearing masks in public, um, et cetera. Uh, you know, she's been, I think she's, had, she's run a very, very thoughtful uh, process um, that was very engaging as well. I, I served on her reopening committee and got a chance to see close up uh, the work that uh, was was uh, put into that and the thoughtfulness. So all in all, uh, you know, I think we've been good in the D.C. area. D.C. is interesting because obviously you have Maryland right. and Virginia, so we really look at the DMV and the governors of both Maryland and Virginia, while um, totally different styles and Republic, one Republican, one um, Democrat. Uh, you know, I think, again, when we put aside our politics, and we, you know, put um, uh, the health and safety first. They both have demonstrated as well, I think, very good leadership. Right. And we talked a lot uh, in our earlier part of our conversation, Dr. Frederick, about reopening school. I want to pivot if we can, because I want to take you back to a letter that you wrote on May 30th uh, that deals with the other major crisis that this country is facing and one that you are facing personally as a leader. And I think most notably in this letter as a father. And you write about talking to your 15-year-old son. And this letter is incredible. And I have to say, incredibly moving. And I recommend anybody uh, who has a child or doesn't uh, and wants to understand more deeply this crisis that we're facing as a country to read it. It struck me very notably because I have a 15-year-old son. And the conversation that I have and the conversations I have with him are very different than those that you have with your 15-year-old son. Tell me what moved you to write this. You know, I, as, as we were thinking about um, this crisis and as I myself was experiencing it um, with my kids, it, it really struck me uh, that sometimes we can, 
you know, in our partisan politics, lose sight of the humanity that's involved. And at the end of the day, you know, my uh, 16-year-old, as you can imagine, is the world to me, as is my daughter, who will turn 14 in a couple of weeks. And what he is facing as he is about to get his driver's license, and I, I think of all of those things, it was just really, um, it really shook me to the core. I came home and met him watching the television, and I could just see on his face that look of, you know, bewilderment, of hopelessness um, about a circumstance that he could not really understand. You know, why should the color of his skin dictate how someone interacts with him more so than the content of his character? And so that, you know, as I thought about the young people who come to Howard, who very much uh, look like him, you know, I thought it was important for me to really um, punctuate it with the humanity. And even as the president of Howard and a practicing surgical oncologist, I am not immune to it and nor are my kids. Well, and you echoed something that I think a lot of black leaders have said, including the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who, who said something very similar that she thought about her teenage son through all of this. Are enough of these conversations happening right now? And are, I guess more importantly, are these sorts of conversations being understood outside of the black community? I think that's a great question and also a very, very poignant point. Um, I think these conversations are happening um, within, you know, uh, black families, and they have been for some time. But the problem is they can't continue to simply happen there. They must happen uh, outside of our community because ultimately uh, the full understanding must be a comprehensive engagement of all our communities so that we can understand and see. And, and I'll tell you, I've had this experience myself. I, I went to MD Anderson Cancer Center as a, a surgical oncology fellow. I had um, attendings who were Jewish. And one day in the operating room, I asked one of my attendings, um, you know, what exactly, um, it, what, what exactly does kosher mean? And, and the reason I did that is because I think a lot of times all, all of us assume certain things, but we really want to make ourselves uncomfortable enough to ask that question and seem, um, you know, either uneducated or ignorant about something. But the reality is we are. And unless we do ask questions, about how people feel and what they do. And, and it turned into an, an unbelievable experience. You know, he, he explained to me what it meant, showed me what a kitchen looks like. I mean, it was eye-opening, you know, right. from my prior understanding of it. And I think more of us um, need to do that for us to really get a full understanding of what's happening and not have it happen, you know, on a on an episodic basis. Right. Well, I want to end our conversation, if I can, on, on a slightly happier but but important note, which is you had a big commit, as they say, to your basketball program recently. And it's notable in part because of what it may signal in terms of top athletes committing to historically black colleges and universities. Tell us about the significance of that. You know, I, I, I think it's um, amazing. Um, this young man, uh, I met him when he came last October to visit, and I was immediately impressed. You know, um, he wants to come to Howard for the right reasons. He recognized that, recognizes that we have a strong, rigorous academic environment. He recognizes that people will treat him um, based on, 
you know, who he is and his academic fortitude. And he very much also is honest about the fact that he's probably a one-and-done athlete. But what we hope to change as well is that we're really going to encourage him to complete his degree. You know, and, and so I am looking forward, um, you know, to having him engage with us. And while he may not be our traditional student and graduate in four years, we're going to definitely insist and do everything possible to make sure that he ultimately uh, matriculates. He's going to get a world-class education, uh, not just in the classroom, um, but, but outside of the classroom and about a lot of things uh, that I think would benefit him in his future. All right. Well, good luck to him and good luck to you. I hope you'll come back and visit with us. Really appreciate the time. Dr. Wayne Frederick, president of Howard University, joining me on the phone from Washington, D.C.